1: only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. This week, we're revisiting a fresh take with Debbie Reber of Tilt Parenting, which big news, you guys, she is a new member of Atlas Media with her podcast, Tilt Parenting. For those of you who don't know, Adalist Media is our podcasting network where we feature a ton
0: of amazing shows for women, for parents, for moms, for dads. And there's lots of great shows. Check out All of our offerings
1: at atalystmedia.com. So Debbie is the host of the Tilt Parenting podcast, part of our network, which is a podcast about learning disabilities, special education, ADHD, autism, giftedness, twice exceptionality, and all kinds of parenting that's a little bit askew, hence Tilt Parenting. And we had her on as a guest when her book came out. Her book is called Differently Wired, Raising an Exceptional Child in a Conventional World.
0: I love this topic as a mother of an exceptional child in a conventional world. She just is full of amazing support and really helped me think about my own processes and my kids' processes. Is it
1: processes?
0: Processes?
1: I'll go with either one. They both sound good to me. Uh, Right. We'll go with either
0: one. And really... When you have a child who is differently wired, there's a lot of parts of it in terms of like accepting it for yourself, helping accept your child for who they are while trying to help them fit in with the world. I mean, it's one thing to say like, I accept my kid for who they are, but there is some work on the side of like, but how do we educate this child? But how do we help this child be happy? You know? because you want your kid to be very authentic, but you also want them to have an easy road as much as possible. And so balancing those two sides of the equation can be challenging in a way that is more than just like aphorisms and like, I wouldn't change my kid for anything, but I also, it's really a superpower. And there are ways in which that (laughs) phrase is extremely true. But at the same time, that doesn't solve all your problems. The fact that it's a superpower and we don't have to act as if there are no problems while letting our kids be themselves. And so love Debbie Reber, love all of her writing and really glad we did this episode with her. Hello everyone and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This
1: is Margaret. And this is Amy and today we are excited to be talking to Debbie Reber. She's a parenting activist, a New York Times best-selling author, speaker, and the founder of Tilt Parenting, which is a top podcast, community, and educational resource for parents raising differently wired children. The Tilt Parenting Podcast has more than 3 million downloads and a slate of guests who are thought leaders across the parenting and education space. And Debbie's most recent book is Differently Wired, Raising an Exceptional Child in a Conventional World. Debbie, her husband, and 16-year-old twice-exceptional son relocated to Brooklyn in 2019 after living abroad in the Netherlands for five years. Welcome, Debbie. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. It's an amazing community you've created. I want to start by laying out what you mean by differently wired. I love this term, and I want to just make sure we start by making it clear to everybody listening.
2: Yeah, I started using that term about six years ago, really as an umbrella term to describe anyone who has any sort of neurological difference. So that could be ADHD, autism, a learning disability, sensory processing issues, being gifted. And it also includes kids who may not have any sort of formal diagnosis, but, you know, they may be highly sensitive or just be moving through the world in a different way. So certain aspects of their lives are more challenging.
0: And this is something I think that it's something that's more common than most of us realized going into parenting. And I have a differently wired child myself. Me too. I feel like this is something that is definitely not part of the dialogue when we were growing up. No, definitely not. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to kind of gather
2: all of us together under this big umbrella is because when we... You know, maybe get one identification or we find that our child has dyslexia, we tend to feel like, oh gosh, this is a bad thing. We're an outlier in this way and we need to hang out with these people over here. And we keep ourselves in these small little groups and when you, just as you said, I would venture to say that probably more than 50% of humans are walking through the world in some way differently wired from what is considered to be neurotypical. But a lot of us, we either don't talk about it, or we just don't understand the power in our numbers.
1: Is the box too small? Like if there's that many outliers, if that many of us are different than is the neurotypical box too small? yeah a hundred percent. there's
2: a Todd Rose is a scholar, Harvard researcher who wrote a book called The End of Average and he talks about the fact that so much of products and the way that we interact with the world it's been designed for the average person and the average person doesn't actually exist. And I would say that normal doesn't actually exist and that's part of what I hope this paradigm shift is about realizing that we can't be teaching kids and pushing kids through this kind of childhood that's geared for typical kids, because they don't really exist in that way.
0: I think for some parents who have kids who really struggle, who really, it's a large percentage of their parenting, specifically dealing with a kid who has differences that make things more difficult. Sometimes this idea of the large umbrella can be a little frustrating, like this idea that there's That we're telling the same story about a kid who has a little bit of trouble sitting still and a kid who has the kind of neurological differences that make daily life more challenging. And so, where does that fit in this conversation?
2: Yeah, I think in general, a lot of the work that I do and try to talk about and get people to change their minds around this idea that there is one way to be, that there's one way to move through the world, that there is one ideal educational model, you know, that workplace should look a certain way and that everyone else has to adapt to fit into that. And so I hope that part of doing this work is just creating more awareness for difference, and hopefully just kind of pushing the boundaries for the way that we include different types of neurodivergent people in every environment in our society.
1: One of the terms that you use in the book that I've heard before, but I think it's sort of a a newer term and probably new to a lot of our listeners is twice exceptional. What does that mean for a child to be twice exceptional?
2: So twice exceptionality is when someone is gifted, whether athletically gifted, creatively gifted, or, you know, what we commonly think of as being having that really high IQ, but also having one or more learning disabilities. And so twice exceptionality is really complicated because you might have a child whose intelligence, their giftedness is masking the fact that they actually have dyslexia or ADHD or another learning disability or the learning disability may mask the giftedness. And so a child may be thought to be not as intelligent because they're a slow reader and they're lagging behind. And really, they have this incredible capacity that is not being taught to. So it's very complicated to really figure out how to support these kids.
0: We were talking to somebody else on the podcast that school is set up for a very specific type of child. The idea that like, oh, it's art. Okay, stop art right now. Go to English. Okay, stop. Like, but wait, (laughs) I was just about to finish my butterfly. No (laughs) art. Didn't you hear the bell? No more art. English. 18 minutes, right, right. Next up, archery. It's like, wait, what? Like archery? I don't, this is not how any of us live our actual lives, right? Like nobody is expected to function this way as an adult, and yet we ask kids And I know for my guy who struggles with this, the constant change and the not knowing what to expect and the like, wait, I was just trying to finish something. And now you're telling me archery is very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. And so is that where this starts at the school level?
2: It's where a lot of the challenges are highlighted because we're placing demands on kids that they simply may not be able to meet and that, you know, what you just described That's true for so many kids of really needing... Either they can hyper-focus or they want to dive deep and spend so much time doing something. And then they're asked to stop on a dime and transitions for kids with ADHD and some other neurodifferences can be so challenging. And I think for most kids, that model is not ideal. It's just that some kids are able to kind of pivot more easily. They are more flexible in their mindset and their thinking. And so they can, can go along with the program without too much protest.
1: And, of course, school is also where we find out sometimes for the first time that our kid is differently wired. I had a child who in second grade was still spelling phonetically a lot of the time, and it takes a teacher to say, this is out of the norm. Or, you know, your child does have this trouble with transitions. I mean, maybe the transitions are the problem, right? But that's when you first learn that your kid is an outlier in some way when they are being asked to do things in school.
2: Yeah. And there are all these expectations too, just about classroom culture, right? So kids are expected to read social cues, there's usually one teacher, and then there are 25 kids, they expect that kids are going to be able to see, oh, everyone else is lining up too. So I should line up. But for kids who aren't honing in on those social cues, they're going to be like, a, they may, may not even notice that anyone's lining it up. And even if they see them, they may be like, whatever, I am so much more interested in what I'm doing right now. So yes, that just again, the demands of school tend to really bring all of this stuff to the forefront.
0: I had a kid who was, it was the squares in preschool, you were supposed to sit on the square. And man, did I hear so much about that square. Everything <laughs> I pick up, it was like, <gasps> It didn't sit on the square. And I just want to look at the lady like, okay, I get that the square is a problem, but like, are we going to have this conversation 45 times? Like, are we going to fix it? Do I need to change schools? But it, I don't know. For me, she was just locked in on this idea of the square and that that this moral failure of this kid not to sit on the square just seemed to me a little bit misguided. But then let's look at it from the teacher's point of view, who's dealing with 25 kids and her life is easiest when everyone will sit on the square. So what do you think about, talk about, recommend in terms of solutions at the school level for this kind of thing?
2: It's so hard. And I have
0: mm-hmm. flashbacks hearing you talk about that circle
2: time. I think that teachers are in a real bind because they have so many students, you know, and again, talking about more of a traditional educational model and classroom management is a real challenge. And if you think about even just statistically 20%, at the minimum, of kids in their class are differently wired. So we're talking about five or more kids who have IEPs, who have special you know, accommodations that the teacher is trying to manage. And the way that child shows up might be super disruptive. I think, first of all, teachers need a lot more support. They need more education for how to even understand and identify what might be going on with these kids. Many teachers get maybe a couple classes in one semester that covers all learning disabilities. And then they're supposed to know how to do all of this stuff and to recognize things. And I think we also need to just start thinking outside the box for solutions. We do things the way we've always done them, right? And so I think COVID has given us a great opportunity, I think, to see where all the cracks are and to try to redesign how a typical classroom works and what else might be possible. And I think we just have to continually push that conversation forward.
1: I want to talk next about how to parent kids who are differently wired, because if it's difficult to teach them, it's also very difficult to parent them. We'll be right back. We're talking to Debbie Reber. Her book is called Differently Wired, A Parent's Guide to Raising an Atypical Child with Confidence and Hope. And Debbie, in the book, you say, I circled the sentence, the parenting strategies our friends with neurotypical kids use are inadequate for us. I mean, sometimes people from the outside will be like, just tell them to sit on the square. Just tell them like you mean it, right? Then that would work for their kid. Why wouldn't it work for your kid? You must be doing something wrong. It's very frustrating, but it's something that anybody who has a differently wired kid can identify with.
2: Yeah. And I think that is one of the most isolating parts of this is, you know, especially when our kids are younger and we start realizing, wait a minute, I read that book exactly, and I'm doing those things and I am not getting the same results. And so then we internalize that I'm screwing up. I'm a failure as a parent. I'm being judged by everybody else. And we can really kind of parent from an ego place which is not when we make our best parenting decisions. (laughs) Speaking from experience. You don't say. (laughs) Yeah. So it is, it's really isolating and confusing and overwhelming, especially if we're just starting to realize, oh boy, this is not going the way I thought it would go.
0: I think this brings us into the idea of the tilt, right? Like, can you describe that to us and how this idea has changed your view of parenting?
2: Yeah, when I think about the tilt, I really think about our own mindset shift. So oftentimes, when we discover that our child has some sort of neurodifference, as parents, we go into fix it mode, we put our energy into getting them to fit inside the box, getting them back on track on the right path with through therapy and support for them. And the work that I do, and the tilt that I talk about is really us as parents and caregivers. Doing our own deep inner work to let go of this idea of who our child should be or who we would be as parents and really leaning in to the human that we're raising and kind of shifting our thinking about what's possible. So it's really a shift from a deficits mindset to a strengths-based parenting approach
0: focused on us kind of doing our own inner work. And I, I think for our listeners, this is something that we talk about across parenting, that parenting the child you have is your job. And that spending a lot of time trying to make your child into the child you wanted to have is not your job. <laughs> and that for kids who are neurotypical, non-neurotypical, who are different than what we expected in any way, I think that often we skip the first stage of this, which is a deep acceptance of what is actually going on. And I know that for myself the idea of like it'll be fine like it will be fine but it won't be the fine that you're thinking it's going to be it's going to be this other kind of fine so much of the trouble in parenting i think lies in this piece of trying to parent the kid we had in our minds
2: 100% i think that's where most of the pain is is that disconnect between reality and what is and this vision we had in our mind of what we expected and it is work that i think like you said some people try to gloss over or they feel like, okay, you know, I get it. I'm good. I'm accepted. I'm moving on. And I think acceptance is ongoing
0: work. That's a good point.
2: Because our fears, our worries, it just keeps creeping up. And it, we have a lot of opportunities when we're raising these kids to confront those, to notice what's coming up, and to continue to do that work. So it isn't a once and done kind of thing, it's ongoing.
1: And what I love about this is that these tilts are not for our kids, right? This book isn't 18 ways you can get your off-center kid back to center, it's 18 ways you can move your expectations off-center. 18 strategies to get that kid on the square. (laughs) Right. It's 18 strategies to, you know, be at the same 10 degrees to the left that your kid is and be okay with that because you have to stand up for that. You give an example in the book that I, it really hit me because I've been on both sides of this about being in the store or wherever your kid is having a tantrum that, you know, is... The heavens can hear it. And you're getting the looks from the other people in the store. Like, well, I know what I would do if that was my kid, right? And I have been both the parent getting the stares and the parent giving the stare. I have. Like, just quiet that kid down. What's the matter with you? We don't know what's going on beneath the surface. It's an iceberg. And... When you're a parent of a differently wired kid and that's having that's manifesting itself in public and you start parenting for the audience instead of for the kid, it's a real pitfall.
2: I love how you put that parenting for the audience. That's exactly right. And I think back of on things that I've done and I still feel a deep sense of not shame, but just like so sad that I made those decisions that I essentially threw my child under the bus to save face for myself as not something I'm proud of, but that is something that we have to, you know, and it shows up more strongly for some people than others, right? There are some people who just can parent from that sense of, I know who I am. I'm good. I don't need to explain myself to anybody. But for most of us, we care about what other people think. And so that is something we have to keep kind of working through and letting go of.
0: Is there also a role, speaking, taking the other side of that a little bit, for finding the appropriate expectations for your kid, because I don't want people to hear like, well, your kid has a diagnosis, anything goes. Like nobody's allowed to give you a bad mean look, no one's allowed to be annoyed that your kid screams the whole time on the plane. Like I find myself often having conversations with all my kids, but saying like, listen, X, Y, and Z are harder for you than for other kids. But there are places where you still have to do X, Y, and Z? Because I believe it is within their capabilities, although I also think it's harder for them. Yeah, I think it's
2: scaffolding, right? Mm. It's really knowing our child. It's understanding what their triggers are, what environments are likely to be challenging. And then I'm a big fan of Dr. Ross Green's work and the Explosive Child. He has a collaborative and proactive solutions model, which is really about coming up with plans ahead of time. And so... You know, the big goal here is to help our kids so that they know how to navigate situations, scenarios that can be triggering for them or where they're likely to have a meltdown because it's unpredictable or it's too much sensory information. And so our job is to work with them, to help them learn those lagging skills, to help them come up with a plan in advance, have a plan for ourselves in advance what are we going to say if this happens? How are we going to respond to the audience? How are we going to, in that moment, handle it? The more prepared we can be and keep kind of working on this with our kids, then we can all kind of grow those skills together.
0: And it's that shift again of like stopping putting it on just your kid, like turning it on yourself a little bit too, preparing yourself for that situation, which is a different perspective that I got from this book. It's looking at the man in the mirror a little bit.
2: We know that all behavior is communication. So if a child is having a hard time in any situation in public, wherever it may be, it's because they can't do anything different in that moment. It may seem like it's manipulative. It may seem like it's just poor behavior, a spoiled child, whatever is coming to our mind. Mona Dale Hook, she wrote an amazing book called Beyond Behavior. She talks about this. She says 95% of behavior is not purposeful. It is a child's reaction to not having the skills to do anything different in that moment. So if we look at all of these opportunities as ways to learn and grow and practice, that can really shift how we experience them in the moment.
1: So here's a tilt in the book, Debbie, that I loved, which was Becoming Fluent in Your Child's Language. This was one of the sort of 18 tilts. Oh, I love this. Definitely see myself in this one. The example that you give is, you know, stop fidgeting and, and look at me so I know that you're listening. That kid who, if they have ADHD, you're telling them to stop the fidgeting and make eye contact. The effort that they have to take to do that makes them so they have to concentrate on that so much, they're not going to hear what you say. Whereas if they're looking out the window and, you know, tapping their pencil, they are listening. And it's very hard to understand when that's not how you're wired. But it is the truth. Yeah. So how does one go about becoming more fluent in your child's language?
2: Yeah, I thought of this idea of fluency because I was trying to learn Dutch at the time I was living in the Netherlands. And I realized, you know, you have to be really fully immersed, you have to be willing to screw up and make mistakes. And you have to just be endlessly curious, you have to look and everything and try to soak everything in and try to make sense of it. And we want to do the same with our kids. Because again, everything they're doing is communication. And it always changes too. So we might kind of figure out their language. And then like the next year, the way they're communicating their needs and wants and fears and emotions may be completely different. But it really starts with just being endlessly curious to always be thinking about what is the why behind this. There's a reason why this is happening to just really notice things, notice what lights our kids up, notice the way that, you know, I talk about in the book that, you know, when my son would ask me maybe like three in the afternoon, I was homeschooling him for a number of years. He'd say, are we going out again today? And I would say, no, I think we're in for the day. And he'd say, great. And then he'd go upstairs and he'd put on his pajamas. And that to me, and like I learned that was his way of saying, I've had a really long day and I just need to chill out. So we can just start noticing our kids and, and we can come up with our own interpretation guide for how we can communicate to them
0: in a way that they'll receive and vice versa. I think there's another aspect of that. I want to talk about it right after this break.
1: Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's
0: H-E-R-O.co and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks.
3: You've come to the right place. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff.
0: This idea of knowing your child's language reminds me, too, of a role that was a little bit unexpected for me of being kind of your child's translator to the world in terms of like school. I feel like I'm goofing on my kids' teachers. My kids have had amazing teachers, and like there's been a couple bumps on the road, but I had one teacher who was not a great match with my kid and kept saying to me, well, all he does is sit and just recite facts about the universe all day. And we're trying, this was kindergarten, we're trying to get him to say the sight words because he wouldn't say the sight words. And I said, would you do me a favor tomorrow when he comes in and sit with him in the corner quietly and have him read a book to you? He knows the sight words. That's not the problem. This is a kid who can verbally recite facts about Pluto while learning something else. That does not seem possible to me that you could be actively talking about Pluto while learning whatever the kindergarten teacher is teaching you too. But this is something my kid can do. And your job is to understand the kid and then like Kind of be the bridge a little bit when they're little between the world and them. And that you might say to a caregiver, like, hey, fun fact this kid likes to change his pajamas when he's had a hard day. And those are the things I think that if we're busy trying to be like, no, 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 act like (laughs) a normal kid while the babysitter's here and put your pajamas on at a regular time, you're missing such an opportunity to like facilitate a better relationship between your kid and a babysitter, between your kid and a teacher. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And I this is where my brain's going. Does your child was he happy about Pluto being not named a planet anymore? Or was <laughs> yeah,
0: that we get to the bottom of that? He was fascinated by it, but he was briefly upset, but he took it in stride. He wasn't thrilled, but he wasn't outraged. Okay.
2: I just had to ask because that was a big conversation in our house too. Yes. I would say yes, a hundred percent, and that is a role that we as parents are often playing, is that outside translator and It's good for us to talk out loud about that with our child. Like, oh, I noticed that you've gotten into pajamas. You must have had a long day. And then can I get you some tea? Like, do you want to do something cozy together? So we can talk out loud about it too, because ultimately we want them to start understanding what they need so that they can advocate for it, so that they can recognize I've had a hard day. Oh yeah, I have this, this, and this that I can do, or to be able to communicate that to a teacher. I'm feeling really overwhelmed right now. Can I go read over there for a few minutes? That's the skill. Yeah, we're gonna wanna pass the baton eventually, but we're playing that role for many years.
0: And not for nothing, by the way, same with your neurotypical kids. I noticed you were really tired in the car. Do you want a big snack today? Maybe you had a rough day. Like noticing your kids' behavior helps you connect with them, period.
1: I love that tilt about seeking out like-minded parents, that this is incredibly important. Ugh. This is a good one. Right. I mean, you can't be, it's like, just do everything perfect, mom. And then your differently wired kid will be fine. But this is a lot of work for us. Having a differently wired kid brings on a lot of different emotional states. And as you say, not just once, but all the time, you can cycle through them. Fear, disappointment, right? Stress. And for your own health and to be a little parent, your child better, you need to invest in relationships with people who really get it. How do you do that when you're already in the isolation? Maybe your kid has profound differences that mean you can't just go hang out at pickup and make friendships in the same way. So how do you get out of that isolation?
2: Yeah, it is so important. It's hard. It's one of the main reasons why I created Tilt Parenting because I felt like I couldn't find those people and the places that existed to find them just felt very much like clubs I didn't want to be in because they had a very kind of downer feel to them. And you know, this is bad, and something's wrong. I think now with social media, there's so many more opportunities, I see so much incredible connection and community happening. There are so many groups that I've been a part of where people can just show up and share what's hard and instantly be flooded with support of people who've been there who have hard won wisdom that they can share, they have resources, they have suggestions. So I feel like you know, even in the past 10 years, things have changed so much more about there being a lot more places and opportunities to connect. Therapists can sometimes recommend groups, you know, in person groups, I'll say that when my child was in second grade, we were in a public school it was our third school in three years. And A friend of mine who kind of knew some of the things we were going through with my son said, oh, you know, there's a group for twice exceptional for parents of two-week kids. And we meet in the cafeteria, you know, the third Wednesday of every month. And I was like, what? Like, I had no idea. There were no flyers. There was no announcements. And I showed up that night and I was like, oh my God, there were like 30 people there. And I never felt more seen and at home. I was like, "Oh, you guys are my people." And it was the best feeling. So it's worth seeking those places out or create them if it doesn't exist where you are.
0: And I think sometimes there that's it can be hard for people because sometimes like kids with neurological differences are very different than other kids with neurological differences and we have sometimes our own hang-ups of like, "Well, we're not really in that world." My kid, for example, like I'm not like a special needs mom. My kid just has these small issues, you know, that like we make divisions within this community that are less necessary. And the older I get, they realize I'm like, oh, that's not interesting at all. Like, it's really nice for me to have people in my life who I can say, it's one of those days. We're not doing social stuff today. It's not going to work out for us. There's a world of people who understand that language, whether or not their kids are struggling with exactly the same thing that my kid is struggling with. Definitely. And I keep saying struggling with, but I mean, their kid is interacting with the world in the same way that my kid is. And just to touch upon something you just said,
2: which is that I think that idea of like, you know, my child isn't as impacted. I don't really belong in that group. That is still part of the mindset that I am trying to fit my kid into the normal box. So you know, and that exists, and it's everywhere. And I understand that. But I think, you know, what I'm encouraging parents to do is to really lean into their child's differences, instead of seeing them as something they're trying to hope go away, or, you know, aren't a big piece of who this child is, you know, this is who the child is, right? It's how they're wired.
0: I will absolutely admit that like, I want my kid to be more normal. And I have, you know, this idea of like passing as normal. And but if I show this part, then then I'm giving into it. It's that is a really interesting line that I think that this book is really good about in terms of just saying like, that big part is just that acceptance of like, everything's okay. And also, spoiler alert, you're not changing anything by pretending anything is what it's not. Yeah,
2: you just said it. And I'm going to just throw in there too. Our kids, this generation, they're fine with most all of this. And even if we expand this to talk about sexual orientation, gender identity, like it's us, it's the parents who struggle with trying to wanting our kids to kind of have easier lives or be kind of more in this normal framework, whereas kids are like,
0: hey, you know, I am who I am, you know? Right. And normal is, what's normal? Normal is (laughs) boring.
1: Debbie, you talk about parenting from a place of possibility instead of fear. And I feel like that's standing at the top of the basement steps looking down at the dark, right? That where this really all comes from, like actually my kid's fine. They're not that problematic, is coming from fear of what will become of them 25 years from now. What kind of adult will they be if they can't sit on their square? You know, some of that, like you need a little fear, like some of that you're being told by the teacher. This seems like a very important tilt and maybe the most important one, but also the most difficult one. How do you adjust your mindset from fear to possibility?
2: I think the most important thing first is to acknowledge your fears and to get them out on the table and to, and I mean, even the really you know, my child is going to be living under a bridge someday, you know, like really go there. Because if we don't kind of bring light to those fears, they're going to be influencing our parenting choices anyway. So we want to acknowledge them and see them for what they are. And then we want to work, consciously work to reframe them and flip them around. And so that means just really getting conscious about every decision we make. You know, this school isn't working for my child. And I'd love to homeschool, but, you know, start thinking, what are the buts that will screw up their chances of going to this college that I think, I don't have what it ta- You know, if you start listening to all of those reasons, they tend to all be from a place of fear. And what we want to do is choose love and possibility. Maybe a year of homeschooling would actually be the best thing to help my child kind of really regain their love of learning. Maybe this will work out better than I could have imagined. And so we want to actually do the work, we can write down those thoughts, all the beliefs that are fear based and flip them around and try to come up with replacement beliefs that are rooted in possibility.
0: I think uh, we've talked about that a ton on the podcast. When I was little, at some point, I used to have dreams that things were chasing me. And I realized at some point that if I turned around and looked at the thing, I would wake up and it would go away. And it's like that is such a metaphor for parenting. Like, if you would just turn around and really look at it, you're running from something that you don't need to run from. Like, there's nothing so scary there. And even if it is so scary, it's still better to look at it because the solutions only come after you really, really look at it. And there are, I mean, I think it can be too facile for people sometimes to be like, this is a superpower and there's positives to this. And that I know for people I know who really have been struggling with really difficult situations that that feels sometimes a little like, you know what, thanks a lot. But for me, we're really in something hard here, but still looking at it is the first step. I just want
2: to say, too, that for parents who are struggling, who have bigger struggles, and those fears may be very real. This is, again, ongoing work that we have to do to confront these ideas that we had. Like The more that we can lean in to who our child actually is, that could be a lifetime of work for us. But I believe so deeply that no matter how our child is wired, no matter what differences they have, they have they're here exactly as they're intended to be. They are here to do things with their lives. They're creative, resourceful, and whole in their own way. It is our expectations of what they should be, as you know, going back to what we said in the beginning, that hangs us up and that creates all of that fear. And so it's just this perpetual leaning in and doing that work and getting creative about what is actually possible. Because so much more is possible than we could imagine. But we do have to expose all of those fears. We have to face them because they're not going to go away no matter what. So we might as well, I talk about making an uneasy alliance with our fear. Like, oh, yeah, I know you. I've seen you before. Move along. I've got this.
0: Ah, that's so well said, because that's it. We always say it's not a door, it's a hallway. Like, there's no door to like, and on the other side of the door, there's complete happiness with the way your child is. Like, that door doesn't exist. This is a journey that we're all on, whether your kid is completely neurotypical, but isn't the captain of the football team like you wanted, or is atypical in ways that you don't, you find very foreign and hard to deal with, or is in any way, you know, a different kid than the kid you dreamed of just get on the hallway. Don't stop looking for the door and just keep moving through it day after day.
2: Yeah. And I will say too, I believe that having a differently wired kid, these kids demand so much of us, right? We can't just phone in parenting we can't just kind of put them in school and, you know, they're going to kind of do their thing and they'll be fine. We'll pick you up after soccer practice and you'll do your homework and it's all going to just kind of unfold in this very predictable way. They demand that we really show up, that we really get to know them so deeply if we want them to thrive. And the benefit of that is that we can have such deep, meaningful relationships with these humans. You know, we can grow so much as parents, we can heal things from our childhood, like it just opens up so many opportunities for our own personal growth, and then to have such rich relationships with what I think are the most fascinating humans on the planet.
0: That's amazingly said.
1: Debbie, tell us about tilt parenting and all the different ways that parents of differently wired kids can engage with your community.
2: So, tilt parenting, actually I'm coming up on my 5 year anniversary, which is very exciting. Hey, congratulations. Thank you. And I launched it as a revolution to shift the parenting paradigm. I launched it with a podcast. That's the primary resource there. I just released episode 246 or something. So I have conversations with thought leaders and authors and all kinds of folks. And I also have a tilt education section, which I launched about a year ago, where I have a crowdsourced list of schools around the world that are friendly to differently wired kids based on feedback from my community, some resources for teachers. And the other place where a lot of people hang out is a Tilt Together group, which is a Facebook group with more than 6,000 parents now. It's parents who are in alignment with the philosophy of positivity, strengths-based parenting, and who are not in fix-it mode, but rather they want to show up as their best selves as parents and support each other.
1: Amazing. I'll put the links to all of that in the show notes for this episode. You can swipe or tap wherever you're listening. Debbie, we loved this conversation. Your book is called Differently Wired, A Parent's Guide to Raising an Atypical Child with Confidence and Hope. This book is terrific. If this conversation spoke to you, get the book. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank
0: you. Me too.
2: Hey there. I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above,